what I love about this is all the work it took to get two people across the table from each other, the amount of craft that goes into building those sets, that table, that space, those costumes to just get those quiet, unspoken moments is the magic of the process for me. Welcome, everyone, to a bonus episode of West of Westeros Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast, where we're still talking about House of the Dragon. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lauren Morgan, and EW TV critic, Darren Franich. Darren, we started this whole thing with you, and now we're wrapping things up. Thank you so much for <laughs> joining us today. Thank you. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm I'm the old king now. I've I've lost <laughs> one of my limbs, maybe multiple limbs. Um, really, just like uh, I didn't realize this show was going to turn out to be the best mummy movie since Mummy <laughs> Returns. That that was that was an unexpected bonus um, when when he pulled off his mask, and I was like, oh look, oh look, there he is. He's uh, Lord Imhotep himself. Um, <laughs> but uh, so much to so much to discuss from the finale. Question mark would be my mm -hmm. reaction <laughs> to to the finale, um, but glad to glad to be here. Glad to be here to discuss this, and uh, I'm very sad that based on George R. R. Martin's recent comments, we are not going to be doing the uh, Winds of Winter book club between now and season two of House of the Dragon. <laughs> it's been taking him like about three years per fourth, so or maybe it's just going to be all downhill from now. Did you feel Lauren like if he'd said any other like? fraction i would have been happier like like you know you know it's fundamentally the same amount of time if he'd said like oh i'm i'm like five six done yeah. like that's still probably three years but i'd be like oh wow he's almost there three quarters are just like oh man that's yeah. like we got we got some time ahead yeah i was like i was trying to be like okay so it's been like 11 years since dance and so i was like so that's like three like i was doing the math in my head i'm like yeah this is still gonna be three or four years so. <laughs> he's busy doing literally everything else <laughs> Yes. <laughs> he's got a few other he's got a few other tv shows he's working on yeah. now it's 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 tough it, it's tough when hbo keeps on calling to say do you have any other tv show ideas like that's yeah. a, that's a difficult call to to not take but I, yeah. I, I think i said it in another podcast that i just wanted him to be super chaotic with like the winds of winter and a dream of spring and just like everything that he's he told benny off and weiss that he was doing like i just want him not to do it like you know daenerys doesn't go crazy brand's not the king like it just like john never comes back to life like it just like i just want him to be like complete chaos when he writes this book like that's what i'm hoping for and i i just want a whole book about young griff that's that's what i'm looking <laughs> forward to like i i would love it if if winds of winter begins with one of the focal characters saying wow like uh, you know this crazy thing just happened that we're not going to show you but yeah uh daenerys and Tyrion and Jon snow and all the characters that you, that you thought you kind of knew and loved they're all dead now now it's young griff and the sand snakes <laughs> i and... want young griff to be on the throne at the end of it just so it really <laughs> screws everything up like, <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of stuff that i'm sure tv show watchers are really excited to hear about like who's 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 young who's griff? griff stop yeah. talking about lady stone like lady stoneheart like yeah. <laughs> well, if we can get Avatar 2 after all of these years, <laughs> we, we could get this version of The Winds of Winter. I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced. 
Just choose chaos, George. Choose chaos. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me today. Um, we're going to have an open discussion about everything we've seen on House of the Dragon season one so far, including the season finale, squeezing in any final thoughts um, and talking about the show as a whole. Um, and later we'll be joined by Greg Yatanis, who directed three episodes this season, including the finale. Darren, I want to start with you because Lauren and I have been talking about this show, obviously, all season long. What are your general impressions of House of the Dragon so far? Well, this is a show that I do generally like. And I think part of that is because I do just love the source material so much. You know, the 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 fire and blood kind of Targaryen ancestry stuff. Um, and for me, episodes eight and nine really were where I felt like the show was cooking, whether drawing from the source material or doing its own thing. Um, my favorite scene of the whole first season was right before uh, Aegon gets crowned king. And Aegon is just a guy who immediately and always, you're like, this is an awful person. He does awful things. <laughs> He's unprepared to do anything, really, much less to be in charge of a country, totally being just pulled along by people who are smarter than him. And he turns to his mom and he says, do you love me? <laughs> and that does not make him a likable person. It makes him a more pitiful person. But you immediately get like, wow, there's just so much lacking in this guy that he just can do so many terrible sins and crimes and still just be seeking his mother's love. And the fact that Allison turns to him and says, you imbecile, it's <laughs> one of the most amazing things I've seen in a TV show. And that that kind of gets to George R. R. Martin's humor, which I think people tend to miss a little bit that like, you know, when he's dealing with this super epic material, um, you know, he can just have such a like kind of bleak sense of humor about it, even as he's creating these really, uh, you know, wonderfully exciting characters. And I, my concern is I think this show doesn't quite get that sense of humor as much as the previous show did. Um, and I felt that a lot in the finale, which was a, a little bit back to, you know, okay, now we're being dramatic. We're around a map. We're planning things. We're plotting things. So I, I if anything, I kind of want the show to embrace that kind of, you know, more twisted sensibility more. That said, um, and I'm going to butcher whatever his name is, but the guy with one eye, I'm on board with hey, him. Man. That's he's, <laughs> he is my, I, I don't know if, if you, I don't know if you guys already did your MVPs of the season. Like he is my MVP. Like that is, that's very much the incarnation of what I think of when I think of fire and blood is someone who's both just more extreme maybe than the average fantasy character, but that is also, you know, very, likable in an unlikable way where you see what motivates him even as you're kind of rooting against him because you know he he, he doesn't literally have a mustache he's twirling but he he might as well <laughs> have one of those but that was my I, i've sort of come down on the his dragon oops which wasn't an oops in the book he pretty much you know uh killed his his nephew pretty unintentionally but his like oh shit kind of moment and i was just sort of like i don't know that kind of makes him a little bit more likable that he's just a doofus teenage boy who did this well, and I'm I'm sure you guys got into this, and I, I I don't want to spend too much time on it. You know, um, that scene makes no sense. No, if you were chasing someone you hate on a dragon the size of an aircraft carrier, like you're trying to kill them. There, yeah, there's no like delicacy to that interaction. Yeah, like what did he think he was gonna for? Like the the whole thing does me. It's just like, Eamon, what did you think you were doing when you were chasing exactly. him through a storm? Yeah, what did you think you were doing? Like you're literally like, I mean, this is one thing the show 
the show ha- has done dragon writing like okay because mm-hmm. it's very hard to make dragon writing not look totally silly and i thought that sh- th- th- that scene there was a lot of uh, great stuff being done visually but yeah like you were writing a beast monster that could devour a whole continent like there's not like any delicate maneuvering going on here so i that's my my, my other big hitch with the show is you know there's so many great performers on this show doing amazing work um, kind of top to bottom from main characters to even some supporting characters. I do feel like the show seems to keep wanting the Targaryens to not be as awful as yeah. they could be. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't mean to kill his cousin and, you know, Rhaenyra and Alicent both have this motivation with the song of ice and fire stuff, which is a whole other thing. And I, I do wonder if the show would maybe be helped by just kind of, making the motivations a little more straightforward like they want the throne they're ambitious they're proud some of those kind of more core primal emotions that i think the targaryens do really well because again all the targaryens are you know even the noble ones are pretty askew Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and i think when the show plays with that that's kind of when i appreciate it the most i think and that's why again i just the, the the younger generation of weirdo targaryens are a lot of my favorite people on the show <laughs> yeah i think you bring up a really good point which is this idea of likability i mean over the course of the season people have been wanting to root for certain characters including damon and then we get this scene in the finale where damon is literally choking rainiera out of anger um and i know a lot of people especially on twitter <laughs> expressed their sort of betrayal um, in whatever they perceived to be this character's really? motivation. Yeah, it, it was, it's very strange. It, it, but like getting back to uh, your kind of point about this, I mean, like these are Targaryens. They are so, they're supposed to be so messy. Yeah. Um, going back to that metaphor of the flipping coin and we never know whether it's going to be greatness or madness that we get. Um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts more about this idea of likability and people wanting to root for characters they maybe shouldn't be rooting for. (laughs) What did you think about that? I'm totally astounded. I mean, like, I mean, one of the first things that Matt Smith was doing on this show was going around and like cutting off people's like Like castrating them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I I don't know. Listen, um, people can watch and enjoy things however they want to. That said, I do think that this show suffers from a little bit of like post Walking Dead syndrome. And I'm sure there's another show that kind of represents this. But Walking Dead was the first show I remember where and, and that's a show that I liked a lot of. You know, I, I enjoyed the first hundred seasons. The last 300 have been a little trickier. <laughs> but um, I, I like that was a show that very much was a post 2000s show where it's like our heroes are going to do bad things and our, our main character is going to like kill people and do all this. But like fundamentally the show also kind of functioned as a like sport where it was like, well, I'm, I'm still rooting for him. And like, not only am am I rooting for him, but he's going to be like in charge of saving what's left of humanity. So there was a little bit of that weird, like the bad stuff they're doing isn't really connecting in the way it should, because fundamentally the show wants him to be a hero. And yeah, I, I, I think that's probably what, right. What you're saying, Nick, that like the show, um, seems to want to feed into that kind of hero instinct. And again, I, I just, to me, what's interesting about the book is not only is, you know, no one a hero, like even the people who you feel that their motivation is um, honest. Like I, I think, you know, Rhaenyra has every reason to want to be on the throne because in this world, that's what she deserves. Like that, that's kind of her, 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 her birthright. Um, you know, 
even she has a lot of aspects of her character in the book that come across where you're kind of like, well, yeah, like I wouldn't want this person, you know, I'm not sure I'd vote for her to be president. Um, but, but then again, <laughs> there's, there's no democracy in, in this, uh, in this it's country. It's a cheerocracy. It's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> this, this show is very much a cheerocracy, but, but again, it's, it's a tricky question talking about likability and stuff because, um, the character I love the most, actually, who's only had a little bit of screen time, is um, Helena. Like, I just feel like that is <laughs> yes. someone who is knocking it out of the park. Princess. Yeah. The um the the perform the, the performer's name I think is Fia Saban. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, if I were the showrunners, I'd be like, we need more of her in season two. Like, she's she is like, she is very much nailing just you know someone who is as much a victim as a example of what the targaryen monarchy kind of looks like so yeah i the likability question is hard for me just because it does seem possible to enjoy these characters but also be like well none of them should really be in charge Uh, i mean but this brings brings up the question of who should actually be running westeros on this show because i feel like in game of thrones you always had these characters who clearly were very savvy and mm-hmm. you know knew what was best for for the country. This show, I'm kind of like Rhaenyra is definitely a more noble person than most of them. Like Otto Hightower, who seems to think he's maintaining the country, yeah, <laughs> seems to Not be really. actively working to tear it to pieces. <laughs> I, I would definitely say like Renice and like oh if she like I, I keep saying I'm like and, and this is another reason the Great Council made the wrong decision. Like as we were seeing like Viserys just sort of falling apart. And Renice basically had a few more wrinkles and that was it. And I was just like, just from a health standpoint, they made the wrong decision. And then it's like, she seems to be like her and Corliss seem to be the only two people who have like kind of functioning brains. And even like, I I found their dynamic where they're even just arguing about like what Rhaenyra has, has or has not done to their son and and that kind of stuff. Like I thought they were like kind of very, like they're, they're basically the only two that I root for. <laughs> like maybe Jace, yeah. even though Jace is too stupid for, you know, I mean, he's just a sweet, dumb boy, but at least he seems to be noble. But you know, I'm just like, there's, there's only, there's uh, good characters are few and far between here. Maybe Eric Cargill at this point. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fair to say like Corliss and Renice at least are like a very functioning mm-hmm. like power couple um, with, with the qualification. And I think this is much more on, on Corliss than on, than on her that like all their moves have, <laughs> have <laughs> left their worked. family, you know, kids dead slash yeah. fled. Like, uh, and so I, it's, it's what, you know, maybe it's just kind of like, playing the hand you're given um that said i am curious to know if um we'll see more of corliss in season two because i so i thought um you know the actor uh steve Tassan, i i thought was like totally nailing at least what i kind of thought about corliss from the books um but maybe it's just tricky because all his cool stuff happens on water and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe even this hugely expensive show it's it's hard to do a lot of it's hard to do a lot of stuff out in the water tank that could be one yeah. one issue maybe they'll they'll deal with going forward water tanks are always a budget buster so i can understand why they're like yeah we're just gonna talk about this stuff and you know <laughs> we don't They'll need just to be slowly slowly sailing back <laughs> over, over the course of two episodes yeah. <laughs> yeah so i mean i don't even know 
if we could actually compare this to the original Game of Thrones. But Lauren, how are we feeling about House of the Dragon as a whole so far based on what we've seen in comparison to our experience watching Game of Thrones? Well, I was really interested at the beginning of the season if there was still going to be an appetite for go- for a story set in Westeros because, I mean, honestly, you know, they really muffed the ending of Game of Thrones. Like, really, like, they, they didn't take their time. And I do think sometimes they're not taking enough time with House of the Dragon and setting things up. Like, uh, part of me still thinks that the House of the Dragon really should have been, like, the first season should have been all Millie Alcock and uh, Emily Carey and then at you know perhaps at season 2 we jump through the uh, through the forward just so we got more like i feel like we're rushing through a lot of stuff and so things are happening and it's like you know it's like we don't really know Lena Valerian when she dies we don't really know like we don't know Bala or Reyna and we don't know much about the kids so it's sort of just like like i feel like if they just had slowed up and t- took a little bit more time they could kind of really establish who a lot of these characters are like there are certain characters they've done a lot of good work with but like there's a lot of side characters who are going to be important in the future and that they just haven't taken that sort of time so i do i do feel like they are rushing a little bit like they did at the end of game of thrones um but i mean obviously it seems like they just wanted to get to the dance so now that they're here mm. i'm hoping that they're you know they're gonna take their time and i really hope next year we're, we're going to get more with some of the younger more screwed up targaryens like i would have actually liked to see Aegon and uh helena's wedding because i'm sure that was just a, a disaster from the word go like like even just like I don't think Helena wanted to be married to Aegon, and I, like so I'm just sort of like that whole thing was you know I'm, I'm there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to see that I'm kind of curious about. Let's be honest, Lauren, mm-hmm. you just want more Lannister twin hijinks. You're like, <laughs> why? Why didn't we get more of the Lannister twins? So you know? many twins on these shows, like you know. But- Let's do Twin let's do fest. some kind of like we could have had a whole episode of like an open closed door farce where it's like, you know, the one Lannister twin pretends to be the other one. And yeah. like, you know, that could have been yeah, I mean, I, I'm still trying to get over the Eric and the Eric, and I'm like, George, what were you doing with these? <laughs> it's not like <laughs> this oh worked God, in a but, book. Yeah. But Darren, before I you answer that, I have to share because this episode will be sharing Greg, my interview with Greg Yutanis later. And he revealed that for the season finale filming, um, the actor who plays Eric with an E got COVID. And so they had to bring in the actor who plays Eric with an A <laughs> to play <laughs> Eric with an E in certain scenes. <laughs> And it made me just, I, I died. That's, yeah. I think that's my favorite story to come out. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and you know, kind of what's wonderful about that, just as a behind the scenes story, is, you know, that that's a very, to me, like, that's like old fashioned movie magic, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's we, we, we got to get, we're, we're filming, like, and I, I do think that, you know, the show definitely, and in ways that are both fun and less fun, it does suffer from the, like, you got to put the budget on screen. Got to get a dragon into this scene kind of yeah. instinct, um, which I think going forward, that'll just be more organic because the dragons are now going to be consistently Everywhere. used as mm-hmm. beasts of death. Um, yeah. But Lauren, it's it's interesting to me to hear you say that the show could have functioned better with a full season of, of the kind of teen characters or mm-hmm. of those kind of generations, because I'm honestly torn on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you're right that we could have benefited from more time spent on just certain dynamics. I think definitely just the Rhaenyra Alicent dynamic 
could have really been helped with a couple more episodes of seeing what's that gradual process of them turning against each other. That said, I, maybe just because I also watched the other uh, <laughs> extremely glacially paced <laughs> fantasy series that was airing during this time period, uh-huh. something about just the like constant kinetic energy of house of the dragon really worked on me yeah like, we're just like we're I, just jumping ahead we're, we're, we're jumping ahead like it, you know the fact that like the, the kind of next generation there needed to be like three actors playing them because you're we moving so quickly like i i i kind of liked that instinct just because it did make every episode there was kind of like the first five to ten minutes of every episode where I was kind of like, are we okay? What's, what's, what's what's happened in the intervening Mm -hmm. time? Like, and you know, I think most explicitly in the time jump where you're just kind of like, Oh, like a, how many kids does she have B you know, who, who do they actually look like in terms of their beautiful flowing hair? Like, so I, I, I liked that aspect, but, maybe one aspect that I think you're kind of dancing around that that you're dragon dancing around is, you know, (laughs) what happens when that's maybe not going to be something they can do next season when we really move into this phase of like, okay, open warfare, you know, we're not jumping years at a time. I, I, I do wonder if at that point, will we just maybe get more of what you're talking about, Laura? Yeah, that's like, what I'm, do, I'm hoping for that, especially with the younger sort of generation of all of these kids, because it's like, we do have to see more of Jason. But the one thing I, I mentioned to Nick before is that a couple of those younger kids need to be older than they are. So I'm kind of like, and, and I was just been joking, like, is this just going to be a soap opera acting where it's like, you know, uh, this, uh, Aegon the uh, Younger is going to be in the next episode 10 years older than he was previously. Like, because there's like some <laughs> kids that need to be older than they currently are. So I'm kind of curious about how they're going to yeah. deal with that stuff. But I-, I wonder about that. You know, um, I was a big fan of the TV show Vikings. Mm-hmm. And like Vikings was a show that like over the course of its run, I think like something in the area of 50 years passed. And what was comical was that like some characters visibly aged and some of them didn't Did age not. at all <laughs> and like I, I i i knew there were kind of some complaints about that on this show like you know why is it that the king just is such a dried yeah, out like why, why did why did damon and renice look really great and the king yeah, looks like i i don't mind it that much I, I think just because to me there is a little bit of the like valerian blood where i'm mm-hmm. kind of like you know I, I get it like you know these are supposed to be sort of like you know great looking super people to some mm-hmm. extent so i yeah I, I but but i do wonder uh, you're right i wonder if there's still going to be some of that thing of okay now that we're invested in this person is it going to be a new performer or do they need to kind of just go away for a while while they age i'm 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 curious about that because um, mm-hmm. lauren do you feel like in general has this generally for you followed the book or, or kind of honored aspects of the canon even while it's kind of doing its own thing you know even considering just the way that fire and blood isn't like a a typical novel it's like a historical novel so there's like so they have had to like sort of invent scenes out of like whole cloth because it's not like you know they've and and i think it's been interesting to see what they focused on and what they've sort of skipped over um and like you know what they like like the the fact that the um vayman's challenge to uh to luke inheriting driftmark like they made that the centerpiece of a of a, of a scene or, or an entire episode where like other things they kind of like, so it's been really kind of interesting to see how they've adapted it. And yeah. I, I have liked when they have sort of confirmed things that you suspected in the book. Like I've, I mentioned this, like with, like you found out that, Oh, what happened really between Qu- Kristen and Renera and how Damon was involved in that. And then, 
you know, I, I really wish we could have gotten a little bit more of Renera and Harwin and just sort of even like, I would have loved to see like, at one point to Renera just realize I need to start having heirs and it's not happening with Lanor. So I'm just going to take anybody. <laughs> and I'm like, and I don't know if she was thinking like, well, Allison has brown hair and Harwin has brown hair and all her kids are blonde. So might as well try it. And, you know, <laughs> like, I'm just curious if there's all of these things. You wanted that like, internal process. <laughs> yeah. You're just sort of like, you know, what's well, like, I mean, you had three, like three kids with one guy and you're obviously like, did she just hope like the Targaryen genes were going to come out in the next one? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. Well, cause this, this gets back at something that I, I, I do love about the books is, and it's, e- it's easy to forget sometimes cause we're so deep into them being so popular is almost like the top level thing with these books is obviously like the seasons move very, very differently. And I, I feel like this season didn't even really pay much attention to that because yeah. it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to do the winter spring thing on, on yeah. screen. I get that. But the other thing is, um, as we learned from like Robert Baratheon and his fun times uh, <laughs> outside of his marriage, like the hair of children is so telling for like ancestry. And I, and I, I honestly would like to talk to a, I don't know if there's like a hair centric biologist or something like that, because in my own seeing of how that works in real life, it yeah. does seem a little bit more random. And in Westeros, it's very much like, no, like yeah. if the dad's hair, if the, if the dad has gorgeous curly brown hair, all the kids will have. <laughs> well, that's like my niece is like one was blonde and one has black hair and they had the same parents. And so it's sort of like, you know, and it's always like, you're like, oh God, if I was an arrow, just found some bleach and just bleached those kids. This was hair. my other question because, because we do know that like the maesters have a surprising amount of like, you know, almost like modern day medicine in this video. I was wondering like, was Rhaenyra ever wondering like, should I just like use Westeros bleach? Like, can I just, like- <laughs> just to, uh, you know, to, to, to lighten up these kids' hair. But, it, you know, it is just sort of funny. What's well, interesting, though, because there are black-haired Targaryens, because, like, Renice in the book was supposed to be black-haired because she has a Baratheon. So it's like they only become black-haired if they cross with the Baratheons, but otherwise, like, they seem to... So I'm kind of like, how is this gene... Like, how are these working? Like, we know the Baratheon has a very dominant dark-haired color gene, so I'm just kind of like, but I guess the high towers don't, and so it's just sort of like, you start thinking about in these like weird like the wigs, kind of way. I, I, I will say because because we discussed this mm-hmm. way back at the start, the wigs did not bother me so much toward the end of the season. Not really. Like, I, I I initially there was just like an onslaught of platinum hair, and I was yeah. like, this may be hard to take. I I, I feel like maybe everyone just kind of like I think they started like them. braiding them. I was I'm still confused as to why Damon had short hair in one episode and then went back to having long hair, and I'm just like, <laughs> what? happened and like it was just like i'm like okay like were you just trying something and then they were uh, like I, i'm still sort of like what was going on here this so. is this is the stuff lauren lauren yeah. is like where is where is the 20 episode I first always, season you know, where we, is... we dig deep into like and you know, it's funny because I, I always get distracted by wigs and no matter what i'm wearing <laughs> watch it what i'm watching i always for some reason have like some kind of wig fixation <laughs> so like, so i don't know if this is just me carrying on about it but, yeah. Yeah. but, but, but again, hair turned out mm-hmm. to be so crucial to yeah. this season. So I, I think that's totally fair to, to, yeah. to focus on. You know, maybe Renera should have just put some lemon juice in those strong kids and just sat them out in the sun, you know, maybe giving them some kind of golden highlights, you know, something. <laughs> uh, 
Before we go any further, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll be continuing our deep dive into our House of the Dragon Season 1 wrap-up. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. And we're back. In comparison to Game of Thrones, I mean, obviously this show has had a lot of people, book purists, if you will, um, who really didn't like some of the changes in the books. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I also feel like they're forgetting the template of fire and blood, which is a historical record. There are unreliable narrators, even things that they state in the book as happening definitively isn't necessarily what might've happened. I mean, I think about the Rhaenys explosion moment in the dragon pit. And I think about like Trump and how he's like, Oh yeah. Like thousands of people showed up, (laughs) 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 you know, like, um, And so for me, it's like, oh, it's not out of the realm of possibility for whoever's writing this history to be like, oh, yeah, Aegon's coronation went went off without a hitch. No, no no big deal. Yeah. Um, So how are you both feeling about uh, the liberties and the new additions um, to the source material and House of the Dragon as a whole? Um, We can talk about things that worked. We can talk about things that didn't work. Darren, what do you think? Just even compare it to its predecessor show. Some of the best stuff in Game of Thrones was them either changing or extrapolating. And I mean, there's there's things the show did that I, uh, as someone who specifically loves the Greyjoys, was not always happy about. (laughs) But but you lost a a lot of Greyjoys in the translation. First of all, the things that I complain about are not (laughs) things anyone else wants to complain about. That's fine. Um, But also, I, I think you know with that show and certainly with this one, um, a lot of times it's when they kind of feel most comfortable making changes that the interesting stuff happens. Again, I, I thought the, the kind of characterization of Aegon and Alicent and their dynamic in that one scene wasn't something I felt a lot of in the book. And I, I think that's super, that, that's a fun thing to play with going forward. Um, my, my one kind of just adaptation thing I struggled with, and I, I'm curious to know, cause obviously you guys followed this week to week. It, their approach to the Alicent Rhaenyra relationship kind of reminds me of nothing as much as it reminds me of um, what Brian Fuller tried doing with his Hannibal TV show, where mm. it's basically like we're taking people who are like famously enemies mm-hmm. and we're now going to argue like not only were they kind of like, you know, friendly or they had this relationship before being enemies, they were like best friends and maybe even like more than that, like the only two people who really understood each other in this crazy world. And we're going to kind of ask, you know, how does that change the story, you know, because to me in the book, what makes their motivation interesting is that Alicent and Rhaenyra are very clearly at odds. Like, and that's just kind of, you know, from reading the book in its original novella form where it begins with them being at odds. And I feel like the show wanted to complicate that. And maybe this kind of just goes back to the, the, the Lauren Morgan, where were those scenes argument mm-hmm. of we just needed more of them together. So in a way 
I almost feel like I wish the show had changed the source material more to mm. follow this thread of like, you know, what are what are the kids' birthday parties like when, <laughs> you know, they they used to be friends as teens and now your best friend has married your dad and you're going to her like third child's second birthday party while you yourself are married and everyone is telling you you two need to be enemies. And I I I get that the show was trying to say some interesting things about like, you know, these are two women in a super male dominated, like very patriarchal world. I just felt like the two of them actually being together could have benefited that more. Does that, does that kind of make, make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that also kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the time jumps and just how the first season played out. And I think there was definitely some executive interference on the HBO level. I, I talked to Ryan Condal a number of times over the course of this season, and he said that George wanted to start House of the Dragon even before the Great Council of Harrenhal. Oh. Um, he really, I mean, he was going way back to like young Rhaenys, young Viserys. Um, but HBO really wanted to get to the action. They wanted battles. They wanted to, so he tried to split the difference. Um, and this was the result um, where half of the first season was with young Rhaenyra and Allison, and the back half was with the adult versions. Um, I feel like the time jumps didn't always work for me. I mean, there I, I did see some deleted scenes um, online that were posted by some of um, the behind-the-scenes talent who maybe didn't know that they weren't supposed to post those kinds of things, but we saw scenes like <laughs> Alicent in her wedding dress. Um, they didn't film an actual wedding scene between Alicent and Viserys, but there was a moment where Emily Carey is wearing the gown, she has this tiara in her hair, and Millie Alcock is um, stitching or like sewing up the back um, in a scene that would have been very reminiscent of when um, Allison is putting on or helping Rhaenyra into sort of her chosen heir attire at the end of episode one. Like there are so many of these little moments and, oh, and also like a blowout sequence. Yeah. That's um, what I really wish I had seen. Yeah. And they filmed that between mm -hmm. with Millie and Emily, the blowout scene after, um, uh, Rhaenyra storms out of the small council chambers when Viserys is like, yeah, I'm going to marry your best friend. <laughs> so, like, now, now, I know what you mean by blowout, but you said that, and I was just like, there we go, some hair stuff, finally. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the way they do that is the dragons come up, the, the dragons are basically the, the, the hair dryers of the, of, oh, God. Of, of the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder, I mean, I, you know, there were a lot of different considerations this season. And, you know, I think back on the fact that like we had the crab feeder and that was a lot of fun. I can't say it was necessary. Yeah. I can't say I still even really understand, you know, given how that stuff ultimately plays out, it seems like it could have been either done more with or just explained away. But I do feel like there was sort of a, like, we got to get to the battles. We got to get to the big stuff. And yeah, mm -hmm. I wonder if just what you lose in that is, um, this totally sincere intention to do more with these two characters. I'll also just say, I love the idea of spending so much, so much more time with like <laughs> young Viserys and young Renice. I guarantee the reason for that is George R. R. Martin. I think he loves King Jaehaerys. I think he thinks oh, yeah. that like, I think he thinks he's the most interesting king. And I think it's just because 
He was a good king who did good infrastructure. He's like a functional. <laughs> he's a functional he was like, monarch. He's the most functional Targaryen king. Just, you know, like, like I think I think George R. R. Martin and I love this instinct wanted to be like, let's do a full season of a good functioning government. Like, let's really see. Like, you know, he holds his small council meetings. No one's plotting against yeah. each other. Like, I don't think I can see HBO being like that. Doesn't sound that dramatic, but I I I, I, I admire the instinct. There. Yeah, George is like, just let me get it to it. I, I I'll make it dramatic. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so Lauren, a mm-hmm. similar question for you in terms of the changes overall. Um, what were what I mean, did the kind of variations from Fire and Blood as a whole work for you, or did they do they not? Well, I wrote a whole article about it. So some of them did work and some of them didn't you work. You did. <laughs> yes. It's live one, right now on EW.com. Yeah, yeah. The one that didn't work for me the most was Allison misunderstanding which Aegon he was talking about. Uh, you know, when Viserys was talking about. <laughs> about the Prince of the Song of Ice and Fire. And I was just like, I, you know, those kind of misunderstandings are kind of my least favorite uh, kind of trope uh, in, in dramatic works. But there's some other changes that I, I, I really uh, did enjoy over the course of the season. And they just kind of made me think about, like, I, I did think it was fascinating that uh, House of the Dragon was kind of having a conversation with the book about, like, how history really like, you know, like how history is recorded and the reality behind it, which is something I'm just fascinated with in general with American history as well. Like what really happened and how did the history of it get yet named? So there's some changes that I, I really like, I, I really enjoyed, uh, uh, you know, even like something like, you know, the Renice's like the dragon pit moment wasn't in the history, but I was just like, that's cool. I'm, you know, even though if you're, you, you know, you kind of did wish she had lit it up uh, like in, in Cedric Harris, but where would we be season wise? So there were some changes that I, I did like, but there were some where I was like, eh, this isn't really working for me. Um, but I, I really like this whole thing of starting Allison and showing how they had become friends at first. And this is where I really wish we had just gotten more time of it because the show is sort of suggesting it, but you're not quite feeling it. Like, like there was enough connecting to be like, Oh, they started as friends in this. But like, I feel like when Renera found out that Allison was marrying her dad and like, didn't realize that there had been this big relationship going on between Allison and Viserys, you know, like that's like when I really needed to see that blowout fight. Because it's like, that was like the betrayal. And then there was the betrayal of, you know, Rhaenyra being like, what are you talking about? I wasn't in the street of silk. I don't know why. Like, you know, your father's just impugning my, you know, my maidenhood. And But she had been, you know, acting out all over the place that night. Um, and, and those kind of like betrayals. So I just feel like seeing the slow decay of how this these two had started as the best of friends. And it just kind of... It, and there's one thing, though, like with the change about Alicent where she went from being like the stepmother from hell and just an ambitious schemer to, you know, I did think they're they're, uh how they made Alicent sort of like, you know, it was like her religiosity and her devotion to duty and stuff like that kind of made her this bitter husk of a person. I did think that was interesting, but you know, there are, is part of me where it's like, the ambitious schemer would be kind of more fun to watch sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like, uh, they're, they're, I, I, I have mixed feelings about some of the changes, but some I did like. So. I think like you, you, you kind of zeroed in on mm. the mishearing moment, yeah. which for me was really, um, that was probably for me the low point as far as just the show almost needing to over explain yeah. why these characters are doing what they're doing. Because yeah, you know, um, 
uh, on the page, Allison, I think you used the phrase ambitious schemer. That's very much how she comes across yeah. with the qualification that like, she's also a really good ambitious schemer. Yeah. Like she is a, she's a very effective, like years in the making plotting how she's going to ensure. Yeah. And it's like her, her, her and her, her father are like doing this together. They're exactly. Like, yeah, and I, you know. and, and, you know, I, I recognize that like, you know, does that make her a villain on the mm-hmm. page? Like to some extent, but also it makes her a very kind of compelling individual who, you know, in the way that I think Martin is great at, you know, he's very good at the kind of like behind the scenes shadow play, like, you know, how is power actually working in this country and having her as a kind of true commander of that was really interesting. And yeah, I think, um, you know, bringing forward that prophecy as something that really motivates both of them just feels a little bit cheapening because suddenly, suddenly now, like she's not really doing it for these vivid personal reasons. Um, which by the way, I still think Otto's argument that like, you need to ensure your kid's safety because Rhaenyra will always want to kill them. I still think that's a very compelling argument. Like, even if we know Rhaenyra probably wouldn't do that. And like, also that Alicent hates her children. But right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she I just mean, hates her children. The, like, she, she hates them, but also is like doing what she thinks is best for them. But also, I just I think there's a lot wrapped up in there without bringing in, as you said, Lauren, just the, that, that's very like, you know, not even good soap opera, like mishearing something and then motivating your entire reason for upending it. So I think, I think that's where, yeah, the, the, the fact that like you sort of remove the ambition and don't necessarily leave a lot there behind. I, I think that's, that's tricky. And especially because I do think that just on a performance level, you felt a lot of her, um, you know, power and confidence as someone who could be involved in a lot of the scheming. Um, so yeah, I, I, I wonder if that's, I'd be happy if we don't hear the phrase a song of ice and fire again (laughs) in season two. Watch the next spinoff be a story and a song of ice and fire universe hyphen. I am am (laughs) curious going forward with, um, because it's like we found out that Damon didn't know the prophecy. So it's sort of like, and we we know kind of how messy the things get in the future is like, is this prophecy basically just going to die with these, like this group of people because it didn't seem like it, you know, I mean, I know Rhaegar later on sort of picks up something, um, but I am kind of curious, like are all the Targaryen Kings after this aware of this, or is this just because of like some messy, uh, messy inheritance of the iron throne? Do we kind of, do they lose the knowledge of this prophecy? That's, that's really interesting. I Mm -hmm. mean, I guess this is what would save it for me is if them all kind of fighting over this accurate prophecy is what weirdly winds up destroying them. Like, like yeah. they're just like, we need to make sure we're here to defend this thing. But be- because they're so at odds, they just kind of wind up. Uh, well, we'll we'll see. We'll see where things go. But it's it's, it's probably not going to go anywhere good for most of the characters. Yeah, <laughs> it turns on to it turns into a who's on first situation. <laughs> Aegon yeah. needs to be on the throne, <laughs> no, but no. Aegon is on the throne. No, Aegon needs to be on. <laughs> <laughs> Which Aegon needs to be on the throne? The other Aegon. Wait, Aegon the first? He's dead. No, no. the other Aegon. No, not that one. The other Aegon, you know. The first Aegon. Aegon the first? No, the second Aegon. He is on the throne. What are you talking about? Um, I, the more that I think about it, the more I feel like the change that worked the least for me was the absence of Darren Targaryen. Yeah. Only because... So this is um, Alicent's other 
other child um, that she supposedly had with Viserys. And George R. R. Martin said on his blog that Darren still exists in this world. He's just down in Old Town. And the reason why I keep coming back to it is because Aegon and Aemond both are decrying the fact that they are the most overlooked of Allison's children. <laughs> and it's like, if you feel that way, did you just forget about this son that they literally exiled or sent to like private school and like boarding school in old town? Like <laughs> I want to know how screwed up, like we've seen how screwed up the other three are. I want to know how screwed up Darren is, or is he just the normal one? You guys are, first of all, you guys are so right. And frankly, uh-huh. As a fellow Darren, different <laughs> different spelling, yeah. but like I the 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 Darren era- erasure is something that uh, we've we've all been discussing it at the Council of Darrens. Actually, me me and Aronofsky and Chris, we are we are not happy about this. Both both bewitched Darrens are, are yeah. Turning I was over just wondering if you were going to talk about the bewitched. They Darrens. are they they are turning over in their grave. I mm-hmm. I, I I think they're both uh, in their graves. But I do like the idea though. You, you guys are making me realize there's a potential for a great. Like, uh, like Caitlin Cooper comes home moment where like Darren shows up and yes. she's waving and is like, "Hey guys, like I'm, what I I'm miss? Gonna, yeah, I'm away at private school." And that was like when Corliss finally woke up from his fever, and I was like, "Well, this is quite a conversation." Renee has to tell him everything that happened. It's like you know, your brother kind of got his head cut off, and you know, Viserys is dead. It's, a lot happened when you were <laughs> while his, you were out. His reaction, I, I just, I'm, I, I'm a sucker for for the Valerians. His reaction to his brother's death, which is very much just kind of like, ah, like we're so ambitious, like yeah. it gets in our what way. Like, <laughs> like, I should have told him to chill out, you know. <laughs> but Darren is still on his social media detox, so he doesn't yeah. know about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, what did I miss? Like, uh, what? Did, <laughs> hey, guys, 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 how come the cousins aren't here for your name day? Like, what's what's <laughs> happening? Like, did I did, did I miss something? <laughs> yeah, this show also adds a few things to the mythology of Game of Thrones that I don't think we got in Fire and Blood. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on your favorite kind of elements to that. One thing that um, uh, Emma Darcy and Greg Yatanis. Um, told me, especially in terms of the birthing scene, the miscarriage sequence in the season finale, is this psychic connection between Targaryens and their dragons, which seems to be a new element that hasn't fully been explored. Um, And that flashing of the camera between Rhaenyra's face as she's giving birth to poor stillborn Visenya um, and Cyrax is sort of to give the effect that Cyrax is having like psychic pains um feeling what Rhaenyra is kind of going through and reacting accordingly which I thought was really interesting what do you guys feel about how this show is kind of adding to the mythology of Game of Thrones I just think poor Sea Smoke must be very confused because like when <laughs> someone's gonna try and ride him he's be like my rider's alive what are you trying to do to me like <laughs> I don't know where Rhaenyra went but I know he's not dead like you know I am curious about that like <laughs> I like to imagine that 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 Lainar, who, who, by the way, I do hope that season four we get a nice, like, relaxing breakaway episode of him just <laughs> hanging out, living the high life. I, I like the idea that like he's trying to be very secretive, and every now and then just a dragon flies overhead. Like, where are you? Where yeah, are you? What's, what's going on? <laughs> poor Sea Smoke, like probably so confused. 
I, I'd be curious to know your guys' thoughts on this. I, I'm a sucker for any of the like Valyria stuff, just because, um, at least from from my reading, Martin himself has still done a pretty good job of like keeping certain aspects of Valyria and of even the kind of Targaryens' relationship to the dragons. It still feels to me kind of mysterious in a mm-hmm. cool way. Like, um, you know, like it's clear that there is that relationship between them and i think you're right nick that he, the show is digging into that a little bit more but um just because that that kind of adds to what i enjoy about the targaryens which is that that sort of link to something a little more mystical than even what you get in other parts of westeros so i, I i'm always really intrigued by that um but yeah I, I i do wonder if um to me with the dragons the one thing that was kind of missing this season was like I think we need just a, a scene of like, what's it like when these characters who are so close to these like giant mega beasts, when they're just kind of like hanging out with them, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, like we get so much of these kind of dramatic entrances and exits and obviously like a, a very cool, you know, what's it looked like to kind of tame a dragon scene. But if that dynamic is how I understand it, it seems like there should also be just more of a like playful is the wrong word, but you know, th- they are close and they are kind of almost linked They're together like, pets. like you know yeah yeah mm-hmm. I, I i wonder if you know the show is very focused on making the dragons look as cool as possible and i think generally succeeding at doing that but yeah i wonder if you know is there even more to do with that kind of relationship as nick mentioned that you know they're closer emotionally and psychologically than maybe even certainly came across in the the previous show yeah, I mean, Rainey's seems to be the most psychically connected to her dragon. And then we get, you know, elements like you mentioned, Lauren, and also mm-hmm. like with um, Aemond just completely losing control of Vagar. Like, they're not really <laughs> that close, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> Unless Vagar has like mental cataracts or whatever and can't like psychically see. <laughs> Vagar's probably like, I can't believe you people just aren't leaving me alone. I conquered Westeros why do I need to be doing this again? Like, you know, vagar has been through it. Like, you know. Yeah. A couple more things um, I want to ask you guys about. Um, one is the fact that the, uh, the original Game of Thrones and also House of the Dragon um, got a lot of criticism, good and bad, about the portrayal of women, the portrayal of people of color. House of the Dragon has actively tried to make steps to course correct in certain ways. Um, there are a lot more women behind the scenes. Ryan Condal has called executive producer Sarah Hess his right hand in the writing process of the show. We've had Claire Kilner direct three episodes of season one. Gita Patel directed episode seven. I believe or eight. Um, so clearly there are more women behind the scenes. Things are playing out, including sex scenes differently than we've seen in game of Thrones. How effective or not is house of the dragon on that front compared to game of Thrones. Lauren, I'll start with you. I actually think there it, it, it has felt like there is a market change behind the camera that there, they are, uh, even as many as the birthing scenes, I'm like, I don't need to see this as someone who's given birth. Um, but I, it does feel like there's very much more of a, a female gaze behind uh, the camera than there had been a Game of Thrones. Because like I said it on uh, one of the other podcasts that like, you know, Game of Thrones had a lot of unnecessary TNA or sex position. And I feel like they've 
cut way down on it here. And like now the sex scenes, there's meaning between like the female characters and they're rarely shot from the female character's point of view rather than sort of the man's uh, point of view outside of like there was that, that scene in the first uh, episode of Damon and Miseria. Um, but yeah, there were like in episode four when there was that scene between Damon and Rhaenyra in uh, the brothel, and then Alicent with Viserys, and then later on that scene with uh, Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. I was like, I was like, when I was watching that, I was like, oh, I, I can tell a woman has shot this, and I was right because I think Claire Kilmer had shot it. Um, and so I, I have been gratified about that. That the, it has felt to me as a woman that I, I like, I have sensed that it isn't as male centered as game of Thrones was like, I feel like I'm under like, and there were great female characters on game of Thrones, but there was just a lot of other stuff that you're just like, Oh, the sex position again, or, Oh, what? Like, why are we seeing like someone's breasts right now? We don't really need to be seeing it. And, you know, I understand it is also HBO and that's what a lot of people are tuning into HBO to see, but I've just been glad about that. Um, from my perspective. It just, it also seems though, like the new point of contention for House of the Dragon is the birthing scenes. Yeah. <laughs> At least in season one. I will one. say, there are some shots where I'm like, I didn't need to see. Like, there, there, if I have a criticism, it's just like, there are some shots where I, 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 you know, like a lot of it is pregnancy loss. And I just know that there's so many women who deal with that kind of stuff. And I, and I just was like, there, there is a little bit more sensitivity I think they could be showing to that. I mean, I think like um would would totally agree with you, Lauren. Um, speaking as someone who has not given birth but has mm-hmm. been present for births, so so by no means an expert, but just like maybe <laughs> with with some awareness, um, mm-hmm. that there was kind of the pinnacle moment of the birthing scene in in the finale, where that scene on one hand, watching it, I was like, mm-hmm. well, this is supposed to be disturbing, and it yeah. is like, um, but. I also had a strange feeling watching it that no one involved in the show had ever uh, either <laughs> was 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 even aware of how human beings give birth yeah. because just the nature of how it was filmed, it seemed more about like we're gonna make this as intense as possible and it's gonna be and I I'm like you know something about the fact that with two birth scenes with Rhaenyra, it seemed to be kind of about making Rhaenyra seem as badass as possible. And I want to be clear, giving birth is very badass and it's one of the most incredible things anyone could do. But on the show, it's kind of like, she's going to do this and then walk up the stairs. Yeah, and or I, then I, it was I like, think- like afterwards she had birth and then she had to do, like, she got quick, can't, uh, like, I was just like, I'm like, was this all in one day? Because this yeah. lady needs to rest. That's, like- that, 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 exactly right. And I, I think to me, it's like, you know, I get you're trying to show strength, but you're also, I think, doing a disservice to just the level of intensity of what she has been through. And as you said, I think maybe there's more subtlety that could be used to focus on what she's experiencing emotionally, mm-hmm. less on the kind of, you know, prosthetic stuff that, that you're doing. Um, but it's it's a really tough question because, again, I, I do think that this show very sincerely wanted to foreground, um, you know, these are two women in a patriarchal world and why do they wind up at odds? And I just think that, you know, if it's going to tell that story, then it has to be that story. And it can't be about like the crab feeder. And it yeah. definitely can't be about like, you know, all the stuff early on with, um, I'm going to butcher this character's name, but in fairness, she butchered every word she said, Missaria. <laughs> and yeah. like, you know, the fact that that was like a subplot. Yeah. For a that second, didn't really go I, anywhere. I think, you know, that's, that's the stuff where I'm kind of like, you know, whatever's happening behind the scenes on the show itself, if you want to tell the story about these two characters, these two female characters, 
Um, but then you're constantly kind of drawing attention away from them. I, I don't know. That's that's a bit of a struggle. And I think it's just an execution thing. Um, you know, this, similarly, I mean, again, I, I think that, um, you know, bringing in um, bringing in the fact that like anybody on this show is not Lily White, which was such a such a big thing with the original show. You know, I think that's a great instinct. I think with, with the Valerians, it's a great instinct. But I kind of had the feeling of like, why is it that the two daughters I kind of know them least of all yeah. and they seem like they seem like, you know, given their place in the show and their place in what we understand is a very patriarchal dynamic. Like when when it was announced, oh by the way, you're marrying your nephew cousins or whatever, I think there could have been more of a reaction. <laughs> yeah. I was like we could have had some that's this is where I, I kind of wish they had slowed down a bit because there's all yeah. of these characters like Bela and Reina and they're just kind of like placeholders in a scene where it's yeah. like they should we should know these characters, we should yeah. know their personalities, we should know how they feel about you know the fact that they're betrothed to these, you know, it seems like they were they were very close to them, but it's it just like, you, you just don't know much about them. And in this show that's supposed to be female centered, it seems sort of strange. Cause like, yeah, exactly. you think like, you know, their grandmother is Rhaenys, like they must be interesting characters. And like, and Lena from what we saw seems like a pretty interesting character, but it's like, yeah. if we had spent more time with it, with them and even like, them like you know like even just like trying to see what damon was like as a father which you're like you don't think about this man being fatherly at all and so when you discover he's he's now a father it's like well what is damon like as a father like you know and and to to your point like you know is what they're drawing from him you know are are they getting some of his kind of mania are are they getting some of his you know let's just say lack of impulse control like i just think that you know whatever the show is achieving on the front of, you know, let's, let's, let's dig more into these things. The previous show wasn't doing so well. Um, yeah, it seems, it seems like there are these kind of weird gaps at times that are just, you know, again, places where on a show that I think there's a lot of material to draw on, I, I would want there to be more of that in, in season two. Yeah. And that was like the one thing I was joking about, like Damon being a father, but it was, I thought it was really interesting to see how much Allison hated being a mother and how that kind of informed her character and how much Renera seemed to be a very good mother and a very natural one and like trying to raise like good children. Cause like Jace and, and, and Luke were the, the, the two you could see most often. You can, don't really see the other three, but like, I just thought like, it's very interesting. Like she seems to be much more motherly and much more natural mother where Allison is like these. That's a really, that's a really good point, Lauren. I, I, I and I think that's actually something that, Again, in this is one me me going back to defend the time jumps. Like the fact that right off the bat in episode six, you immediately see like who is what kind of parent, who's what kind of parent, and you know just how you are as a parent can be very reflective immediately in in a drama of like what kind of character are you going to be now? And I just think yeah, like she's a, like Rhaenyra kind of comes off as like a chill coastal mom. Like she's yeah, kinda, like, like she's just know, like was like cradling Joffrey and was just like oh well you're going to have a bath now. And I was just like oh that's like she is. And I don't know if it's just because I am a mother and I just noticed that stuff, but where it was like. And when Allison was like sitting with Helena, Helena's like counting the bugs uh, legs and she's just like, "Mm." and I mean, it's like, I've I've had those moments too. Trust me. Parenthood can be pretty boring, but like, she's just like, "Mm." 
that's oh, you fascinating. Could, you, you can know? tell Rhaenyra mm-hmm. is someone who she's she's got games ready. Yeah. Like, you know, when it's when it's time for wind down, she's she's got them all lined <laughs> up and like, you know, they're all they're all hopping in the, in the bath together, probably. Yeah. Like Allison is like she, she she seems like she is struggling a little bit with certain aspects of <laughs> the, the 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 emotional cradling of uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Emmys really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Game of Thrones was obviously a very big juggernaut in sort of the award space at the time. Do we feel that a lot? I mean, Darren, you've watched so much TV this year. How do you feel about these performances in terms of the merits and the award season that we're about to get into you, in a few uh, months? You, you know, I, I'm going to say the most boring thing you can say about this, which is that obviously Patty uh, uh, Considine, Considine. Uh, um, apologies for all <laughs> pronunciations of both <laughs> fake characters and actual people. Um, he seems like he's very much in line um, for an Emmy. I am curious to know if the general HBO juggernaut will carry over um, more performers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it does seem to me as if um, you have a lot of super buzzy people. I'm actually not totally clear on if Millie Alcock would be open, would be up for supporting or whatever. Mm. I, I know there's obviously, I don't know if they would like, there's like that guest actor, which I know you have to be in, like if you're in more than six. So I don't know if they, yeah. like if they would both be like, yeah, I was kind of curious, I'm about that. curious to know what kind of category fraud they will use to get as many people <laughs> nominated as possible. Um, but yeah, I, they are the two who I would just guess might be most in line um, as far as just kind of right out the gate. Um, but I am curious to know if there's more of a juggernaut with this show, which obviously had a, a gigantic viewership, um, then as much as I'm, I'm not sure the character was all there yet. Um, you know, you got Matt Smith, obviously, um, mm. the, the two, uh, the two lead Queens, I, I guess they, if there is more of a true, just behemoth, we're getting all the nominations. I suspect those are performers that could get nominated. Um, but yeah, I'm, it's funny as much as this show has been a phenomenon, I'm honestly curious to know if it will get a like best drama nomination um, Mm. or if it'll fall into a little bit more of the, um, the world that I think a lot of big budget prequels seem to fall into where it's much watched, but not necessarily nominated. So I guess it's, it's unclear. Like, is this going to be, Game of Thrones season nine, or is it like, you know, Book of Boba yeah. Fett? Sorry, not as, maybe not as <laughs> controversial as <laughs> that. Yeah, but that is, it, is, it, is it like a popular phenomenon? And I honestly don't know the answer to that. Like, Lauren, like, do you think, does this have the kind of Thrones? Well, it's like, Emmys I mean, pulled? Thrones was kind of a, like, towards the end was kind of an Emmy juggernaut. But the thing is, they do have succession now. And I know that HBO puts so much, uh, so much of their firepower behind succession. So I don't know how it is going to be now. Um, that they have these uh, these sort of two computer competing ones, and uh, how that would be. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of guest actor shenanigans, just because, like you know, uh, because <laughs> because of who was in what thing. So I'm pretty sure they're they're gonna they're gonna pull some stunts with that. Um, but yeah, I am kind of curious because, like you know, it, it, I mean, even like Game of Thrones, like didn't it win for its final season? I was like, it should not have won for that season. <laughs> um, and you know, and 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 not everyone got nominated, but a fair amount of people did get nominated. Only Peter Dinklage won, um, I think out of the main actors. So I am kind of curious how it is, but I mean, it is also like this first season is a little bit clarified because you have like the four, um, the four, you know, the four people who are playing the, the two lead characters, obviously the second season, it'll simplify down to Olivia and Emma 
So I'm kind of curious, but I, I think there's going to be a lot of shenanigans with guest actor. I don't, I don't guess. think the show will win best drama. Yeah. You know, we'll see what yeah. happens. Do you realize if this show won best drama, how many actors would need to get on stage? <laughs> that would be a lot. That would be a lot. <laughs> There are like the, Although there I are think, like six characters that are played by three people. Yeah. Like, that's like <laughs> but the thing is, like the Game of Thrones cast was pretty big, but they were all playing separate people. But we have like you know, like all the younger characters are played by like three people at least. So yeah, I think for me, I feel like episode what was it? It could be six. No, maybe it was seven. Got it. The timeline, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, the eye for an eye scene. Um, yeah, between, that was great. I think that really, for me, kind of solidified Olivia Cook as a really big power player. Yeah. And then also the penultimate, especially in the small council scene. Um, if we're like thinking about how like Emmy voters kind of work, and it's usually like one or two scenes of like a standout performance that kind of everyone can kind of point to. Those two things really stood out for me. Great um, point. Yeah. yeah. Lauren, I know you wrote about Olivia Cook's performance specifically. I mean, did you have a favorite performance overall from this season? Was it Olivia? Um, well, I have to say Patty, just because like he made Viserys into something that I just didn't think he was on the page. Like Viserys wasn't super interesting on the page and he gave Viserys so much pathos and tragedy. And so, and I think his final uh, episode, episode eight, like that is like, I mean, that, that is a hard Emmy episode to beat if you're in contention. Um, so I, I definitely would like to see him, uh, be recognized i mean i loved olivia's performance because she did make me think about allison in a different way because you know as as i said in the book she was like this ambitious schemer but then in this uh in this you just sort of see all the different ways that allison is like pressed from from different sides and like she's she's doing things in in some respects but she's just so miserable deep down like this isn't someone who is a happy person doing this and I, I thought Olivia was really great and she was great in the eye for eye scene because you just sort of see all this kind of mania kind of come over her about like just being like so fed up and so like all of that bitter resentment she had against Rhaenyra just kind of came pouring out and then when she slashed uh, Rhaenyra and like actually drew blood all of a sudden it was like she kind of woke up from that mania and like just like you saw the just shame descend on her so I thought that was a pretty spectacular scene I do think Emma Darcy though was great like the whole way through for oh so for good her. yeah she was so yeah. good like even just like the birthing scenes like like you know um, as much as there were aspects of the birthing scenes I didn't like like you know I I thought she was really fascinating the whole way through so as well and also I love yeah Millie Alcock obviously Darren what about you was it uh, Patty your kind of standout performer of the season I mean I it, it's <laughs> again it, it's a weird thing to say about a show that so clearly did not want to be the show where the old dying king guy was the most interesting character but at least for now um I just feel like what Patty did by almost taking a character who's the reverse Ned Stark, where like Ned Stark all season one, you're like, this is a big, noble, cool guy who's doing awesome things and is great and like is very, you know, troubled and tortured and wants to do the right thing. And then he ultimately, you know, dies in a sort of almost like hilariously pointless and meaningless way that sets off the rest of the show. With Viserys, here's a guy who the first few times you see him, you're just like, this is kind of a like, this is this is not a very interesting or exceptional person at all. And the way that um, on the performance level and the writing level, 
you kind of come to see that his unexceptionalism is really what defines him yeah. and how, mm. you know, he sort of, he sort of made like trying to keep the ship afloat very interesting. Like here's just someone who just knows that like the, the things he's done and the things that are happening to the realm are things that could destroy his whole family and just trying with all his might to make that not happen. And then with his dying breath, basically making it happen. I actually, that's, <laughs> that's that, you know, to your point, Nick, about like the, what are the scenes that get you nominated? What are the scenes that get you a trophy? Um, you know, certainly the tail end of his performance um, is just kind of nonstop, great larger than life moments um, that, that have been built up to. I still think that for me, the, the clicking point for this show was that scene in, I think, episode three, just that long shot of the king uh, in the corner of the room drinking more on the hunt, just being so beaten down by all the things he has to deal with. Um, I, I just think so. I think that's that certainly is the performance that, um, similar to what Lauren is saying um, with how she felt about Alicent, that sort of took a character I hadn't thought that much about and really kind of brought, brought that character to life. Mm. One last question for you both. Um, and we can talk as specific about the book as possible, or we could talk more generally about structure. What do we want to see in season two and beyond? Lauren, I'll start with you. Um, I'd like to see more from the younger uh, collection of characters. Like, as I, I mentioned before, like Bela and Rainer, I want them to give more definition to these characters. And so it's not like they're just kind of like scene fillers. I want them to feel like they're really dynamic characters. Uh, and, you know, I would like to see, I guess, a little bit more between like Amund and Aegon and Helene. Because it's like, like all of these characters, um, these are sort of important characters going through and they have some big roles to take. So I kind of hope they, they, they slow down a little bit. I mean, I know we're going to get a lot of big battles and stuff, but I, I really hope they take the work in, um, you know, making sure they're, every character on screen is popping the way that they should. That's, you know, that's kind of one of the thing. And, you know, and as, as I always joke, I just want to see more dragons as well, but <laughs> you know, so excited to see more dragons, but I really want them to do a more character work with some of the, the characters that we haven't really seen so much from. Yeah. Well, I feel like season two is going to deliver on more dragons. Yeah. I mean, Damon mentions Harrenhal yeah. uh, in the season finale. And that is uh, something something happens with Damon and Caraxes and Harrenhal <laughs> in the book. Um, Darren, what about you? What do you want to see in season two and beyond? Yeah, you know, again, just like the nature of how they chose to lead up to the oncoming war, um, it did make this first season feel weirdly a lot more... Um, laser focused on King's Landing. And I, I think that might contribute to just the sense of like, you know, there wasn't quite the same sprawl that you got right from the start of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. um, and just the nature of where the story is going, you're already getting this with the, the, the trip to Storm's End is like, we're now going to have these clear different spheres of power. And and I'm, I'm excited to see the show just do more with that. I think that might help just to feel like the show is opening up a lot more where you now have a these two different uh, people who say that they're on the throne and we're kind of following those people, presumably, but also just to kind of, to your point, Nick, are we following one batch of people from this side as they go here to Heron Hall? I, I'm, I'm excited to see the show do that. Cause I think that, you know, as much as I liked the time jumps, I think more than people um, just, just like simple space jumps of, you know, we're going from here to here and there's more kind of subplots to follow. I'm excited to see the show play with that. Cause in my memory of the book, um, once the war does get going, there's just a lot of different 
parts of the map that are kind of lighting up with drama. And I think maybe more of that would help just with the feeling of seeing more of this world around them um, as it's uh, no spoilers here as the world starts to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more that I was saying that, um, cause I know Jace was her- headed up to her. He was going to the Vale and then to Heron uh, until Winterfell. So I am interest- interested to see the Starks kind of come into play. Cause they do have, a role in here. So seeing Cregan Stark, uh, I, I'm I'm kind of interested to see them reintroduce Winterfell, which we've known so much from Game of Thrones. So sort of seeing the North kind of come into this, I'm I'm interested to see that. Yeah. Maybe uh what I'm about to say has like a lot to do with the time jump factor mm-hmm. of season one. Um but like thinking to, you know, the rings of power, what I think I liked about that show is it kind of lent into sort of the traditional um, ideas of serialized storytelling with cliffhangers and mm-hmm. sort of a season long mystery that was tr- slowly transpiring um, over the course of those episodes. Whereas House of the Dragon really felt like each episode connected to each other, but were also very distinct and had definitive beginnings and ends and less of that. So I don't know. I, I kind of, maybe it is. I don't want to see more time jumps. Maybe it is. I'd like to see Nick, more of a connection. Through Nick, wants to see, Nick wants to see important people accidentally run into each other in the ocean. That's what yeah. you're asking for. <laughs> you, want, you want defining canonical mythological things to happen because people are swimming and boating in the ocean and they find each other. That's, that's the yeah i i i all, all kidding aside i do think that that sort of like frantic forward momentum you're talking about nick i think just the nature of where the story is going there has to be some more of that um and yeah i i wonder if we'll get just more of that right off the bat as you know people react to um what happens in the in, in the finale and kind of what what i don't want is like eight episodes of like we're around our map they're around their yeah. map. <laughs> There's some awesome map stuff happening here. Like I think I think we can we can move past. We get it. You guys have cool game boards in yeah. your house. Like <laughs> I, I have to say that table. I was like, man, I wish that was my dining room table. The way they lit it up like that. I was like, did Stannis not realize that table could be lit up like that? Like, did they just lose that? Did they just lose that knowledge? All. All Lauren wants for the holidays is yeah. a table that lights up with lava. That's that's yeah. the one. <laughs> I was like, that was cool. But alas, I understand why their candle budget was so bad, you know. <laughs> well, Lauren, mm-hmm. our watch has ended. It has ended. <laughs> How are you feeling right now? Um, probably like I want to take a nap, but I know you really probably do as well. I mean, I, I hats off to you, though. Your coverage this uh, season has been spectacular, Nick. And I, you know, it's been a joy to join you on this journey. And uh, I'm not sure when we're going to be coming back, but, you know, eventually when season two pokes its head up. Yeah, yeah, Nick, Nick, uh, echoing Lauren, amazing job, your coverage, and, and Lauren, uh, you guys both just doing so great on this show. But Nick, let's let's get into brass tacks. What week is season two debuting? Yeah. When? When, <laughs> when are they going into production, Nick? I need to know. You First know? half of 2023. That's yeah. what Emma Darcy says. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> But thank you both for joining me today. Um, We do have a couple more bonus episodes of West of Westeros coming out, including an epic crossover conversation with EW's All Rings Considered podcast to chat about House of the Dragon and the Rings of Power simultaneously. Um, But beyond that, we're going to take a very brief break. And when we return, we'll be speaking with Greg Gitanis, the director of episodes two, three, and 10. Stay tuned. 
I read some of your Instagram posts and you mentioned that of all of the things that you've done in your career, what you're most proud of, uh, this season finale definitely ranks high on that list for you. What specifically sure. are you most proud of for this episode? You know, I, I if, if you look at, it's interesting, if you look at the things that I, I, I later was asked about what those other, the other four things on my top five list were, and they all are familial relationships. You know, they're really stories of family and they're and and even more specifically stories of marriages. You know, I'm fascinated by the complexities of marriage and the complexities of um relationships in that regard. I mean, most of the relationships I've dealt with have been like male-female relationships, but uh in those stories, and in particular, what I loved and and the the mud of of the finale that excited me so much was the Damon Renera complexity of their relationship. You know, you believe it's going one way, and then you're watching, and then you're watching. And what's interesting is you're watching everybody else's reactions to like either you know on the outside it's mom and dad are fighting, you know, between them, it's you know there's all this product. I that scene across where they are across the table, and this and this goes to you know the great work of both Emma and Matt and getting rehearsal time to work these things out um, is them across the table. Like the looks and the unspoken moments between them are, are some of my like favorite things. And, and what I love about this is all the work it took to get two people across the table from each other, the amount of craft that goes into building those sets, that table, that space, those costumes to just get those quiet unspoken moments is like the the magic of the process for me and this in particular this episode in particular had magic all over it that i really i'm never going to forget in my life yeah i spoke earlier to um tim lewis the master armorer mm. and um uh, Dan- i love him oh he's great so fascinating and then yeah. also um daniel scott smith who plays the crab feeder yeah. um and Crabby. both of <laughs> and both of them really credit you um, for really shaping performances, shaping the episodes that you were involved with. Did you have a similar kind of environment on the season finale? I did. I mean, I, I, I you know, it was nice that Emma in, in the in the behind the scenes last night, you know, called, you know, called out that moment when she first is crown queen and then gets to the table and being able to sit in that that like this every everything is now come true it's everything you've learned what's the first thing you say and all the pomp and circumstance around that also inviting others to the table you know doing what she did not that's why i told people to rewatch two before is to really see because they re- they're, they're mirrored episodes you know you see how renair is outside of the group outside of the conversation how she brings she wants to instantly change things but i love everybody staring waiting for her first moment and you know we sat in that moment you know i i i told them uh you know don't don't speak until you feel ready and play and live in that discomfort for a little bit and and then also with the ritual and ceremony you know we also talked about wanting you know treating the inanimate objects as characters you know i had the predominant dragonstone and treated dragonstone as a character you know as a as a as a fan, I wanted to go back to those places that were there. So those environments I felt were helping to fuel performance. And when you're going back to Krabby and to Tim, um, and and Daniel's so sweet. And by the way, he had never picked up a hammer in his life. I had this idea that Krabby's weapon would be a hammer, and Krabby was written much more Warrior Mountain esque. And and I wanted this this like almost the Slender Man, you know, to be mm-hmm. him. And 
And Daniel was such a find and so lovely. And, you know, I know we're backtracking to three just for a second, but, you, you know, Tim also in three made the spear for the medieval hunt and mm. he brought it to me. It was beautiful. And I'm like, this thing needs to be once beautiful and now embarrassing. Like I, Tim, I'm like, I'm not, I, he's like, how will I know when I have it right? I said, you'll be ashamed to show it to me. And he was like, he, he died. And he's like, when he got to that spot and he's like, like handing it over to show it to me, it was, I was like, it's perfect. So, <laughs> um, but I think those things, you know, inform character. Like, you know, I mean, for Jefferson, you know, when he's holding that spear, it's like, he knows how, how ridiculous his character is that he like overdid it you know, and, and those, those, you know, and, and that, and they knew how to play with that, which was great. And Emma, especially, and Matt, especially, you know, the, the Matt, Matt very much wants to find it in the moment, in the scene when he is costumed and wigged and in it and wants to just work out the mechanics of, of, of just what's going to be necessary. You know, we got one day to, to work through a lot of those scenes in Dragonstone and watching the individual process. And then, you know, as a director, you're you're kind of a referee of sorts of everybody's process where everybody can do their best work and you're trying to foster an environment where, you know, we know what's going on and Emma knows what to anticipate, but there's still room for the dead. I'm not someone who likes to over-rehearse, but I do like to know what we're walking into because we want to use as much time as possible to shoot and to find that last 10% of, of the magic. Yeah, I remember I, I was on set for episode eight and Matt had said that he had like really injured his neck and like could really only like oh, yeah. film for like a few hours at a time. I mean, was that kind of a major production hitch to like figure yeah. out? It was a well, we, we had all that. There's that scene, that big scene, the big scene with like Corliss comes down and they're putting, uh, you know, the, the markers on the table and the messenger comes in and we have... um uh, Luke and his brother, who are or Eric and Eric, right? And so one day, like in the, it was a shot over two days, and then uh, Luke came in for Elliot, who uh, who got COVID, and and then so I we swapped him out with his brother. So like there, and and he's playing his brother, and so it's <laughs> there was like that would have killed us because we were just about to do all Emma's coverage, and he's standing right right next to him. Mm -hmm. And Matt did injure himself. And so we had a like really like not just a photo double, but kind of an acting photo double to do shots that there's a couple of overheads and, and moments where we could spare Matt that we substituted him in. And he was there the whole time ready to jump in if anything with Matt got too tough because Matt was in really bad shape uh, for that. But when he when the camera rolled he brought it like it was it was kind of incredible you know it's that you see that with actors that they can they can summon it and then you could see him like you know have to have to wound so we threw everything out i went through it on the battle too actually and matt hurt his knee uh during the oh, battle in wow. episode three so, so there's a, a huge part of that was um you know his doubles and 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 so forth you know being able to do the big physical stuff and then matt would come in um and do as much as he could but when it was time he would like he'd be like look i've got one i can give you one great take of this before i think my knee's gonna give me a hard time so yeah no i mean speaking of action i mean 
you know, Miguel Sapochnik has obviously like garnered this reputation for directing all the big, the biggest action sequences in Game of Thrones. And now you get this honor. He's like passing the torch to you in this first yeah. season of House of the Dragon. I mean, when did you realize you're like, oh, I'm actually directing all of the action heavy kind of episodes? Yeah. You know, what's great about Miguel and I is that we we go back. You know, I, I brought Miguel out of features into television. Uh, when we did House together. And it was nice to have that flipped for House of the Dragon. And so since we have had a similar process, Miguel's like, you know what? I am good if I never do another battle again, but what a great resource to have when we were doing the battle. And he had great advice producerally in terms of approach and ways to do a Game of Thrones battle successfully. And even though I had done a lot of action, I had not done a medieval battle. And done dragon fight so what was great was you know he left me alone to really choreograph that dragon fight i'm sure you saw maybe in the behind the scenes they i i gave them the footage of me like in my pajamas with the toys while we pepe and i were working and like my girlfriend's like oh my god you're not even wearing your shoes i'm like i know i know like they i was like i was very generous with that footage and they used a lot of it um but it was yeah, it was really fun. I, I literally just got out toys and Pepe and I with our iPhone should made that sequence with our with our iPhone and our and our toy dragons. And with the battle, you know, Miguel had some good strategies and and broke down Battle of the Bastards almost in a masterclass way. That was kind of fantastic. And it was nice to pass the torch. I wanted to originally I was going to direct two episodes. He wanted me to do um three and and I wanted to do 10. I read 10 and I was really connected to it. I was connected to it for a lot of reasons. And um, and then two, he and I, I was originally supposed to direct seven and he was going to do two and we had to flip because of our sets weren't quite ready yet because of some of the delays with COVID. So, um, we ended up flipping two and seven. So I was actually looking forward to working with the adult cast more and, but I was really enchanted by working with Millie and Emily, um, you know, on back-to-back episodes. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned earlier about sort of, uh, you know, the fa- familial drama um, that's really centered um, in the season finale. Um, you mentioned the complexities between Damon, Damon and um, Rhaenyra. But like, what were some of the other reasons that you felt connected to episode 10 when you and just knowing that you wanted to direct it? I, I found Eamon fascinating. You know, bullies are so often the most vulnerable and and, you know, want to be. Uh, it, it's such a defense mechanism of them, you know, as, as, you know, I, I think uh, as someone that was bullied uh, when I was younger, um, I've been fascinated by, I think it was actually in high school when, when like the kid that bullied me actually ended up winning uh, like most friendly in our school. Like, and you could see that like whatever he was going through at the time that he was like, the, you know, like my childhood bully, he finally had found like his groove and felt accepted and and felt out there. And, you know, I think for Eamon, I, I was really fascinated by the, the unintended consequences that come with how you treat people and, and, and seeing that his trauma and wanting to try to kind of reclaim, you know, the, the bullying of Luke is a, trying to reclaim power. You know, he does, he feels as his, you know, his, he's, he's the more equipped one to be King but he can't claim that power. And he, and he is, you know, he was teased merciless, mercilessly as a kid, uh, humiliated as a kid, you know, claimed Vagar as, as a way to claim power. And with that, um, I found it, 
I was I was just really curious about his psychology, and I love that we tie together what Viserys says at the very beginning of the season, which is you know it's it's an illusion that man controls dragon, men control dragons, right? Mm-hmm. And and this was the example you're putting nukes in kids' hands, and you know while he maybe didn't intend to you know, set out to kill him, what do you expect? You know, and then to see that the the the, the complexity and the gravity of what he's done on him i love seeing his vulnerability and his complexity so i found him and i thought he did such a beautiful job making that character not just a one-dimensional black hat yeah um, right so so there was that so that pulled me in i also the scope and the scale as as a as a filmmaker you know the challenges you know to, to go onto the side of a mountain and to uh create dragonstone was astonishing i was i i i mentioned this last night but i was i was really emotional at the end of the coronation sequence took us two days to do it and you know we wrapped as the sun's going down and you're just looking out at like everything that we brought there everything we did to get there we had an incredible crew in spain and portugal that 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 just produced orally made the side of a mountain one of the most shootable locations i've ever been in and you know i i helicopters lifting all the equipment in it's spectacular that there there was there was that appeal and even though i had flirted with the original series um in doing that a couple of times schedules never lined up and um it was a nice way to be able to like come to the show and to be able to be the one to close it out uh, yeah was, was special unto itself so those are the, so the, those are the other things that appealed to me yeah I remember um, when I spoke with Ryan, he mentioned Steven Spielberg's duel um, as sort of like a reference point for this final um, sequence of events between Amond and Luke. Um, I definitely got Jurassic Park vibes too. I mean, you have that awesome shot of Vagar kind of in the distance, like yeah, <laughs> in the, the rain. I'm like, oh, that's a T-Rex moment. <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, I actually went back to the, I watched the, the in preparation I watched the first How to Train Your Dragon uh, because that was, you know, Roger Deakins was the visual consultant on that. So that cinematically was was going to be really appealing and went back to the original Jurassic Park because there was a sense of scale to the dinosaurs that I don't think any of the co- subsequent films ever recaptured. And that was largely because I think Spielberg shot in 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 185 versus anamorphic, right? In, in terms of 235 to weird he knew he wanted to frame for height mm. and i took a lot of cues off what made the dragons what made the dinosaurs look so big and 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 so interesting and so there's a lot of jurassic park in storm's end and in the air and um again it was it was there wasn't a lot of specificity to the dragon fight itself and that was really great to be able to create that um uh ryan mentions duel and i think that it was dual in the sense that we were going to not see Amon until deeper into the sequence mm. um there's different moments where we we played with when is vagar out of his control and you know for me it was closer to the um uh it was back more when uh he uh uh vagar takes that swipe with his claws is is mm. like where for me, like I wanted to see, and in fact, I think in, in my original cut, I had, I had, aim, like you saw that, but I, we didn't want to overplay that gag, and I think it was better to push it down 
to later that that really the dragons start fighting with themselves and now it's then now it has nothing to do with these kids and um I'm trying to think what other references i had for that um you know we we the reason you know that was a great example of of being able to use all the tech you know i started with it with the toys to get the blocking and then the third floor visual previsualization um was able to take my toy videos and turn them into the blocking and then we had what was called a vcam where i could have be like on a camera dragon right and go around and be able to shoot the shots and then we could cut those together so it was it was a really incredible process that began the day i got there and was finished the day i left it was it was the sequence that took the most creative time to do mm. i mean did miguel have kind of any input on this episode you mentioned he had like some notes about you know how to approach like the stepstones battle and everything no i miguel gave me a lot of autonomy and when i had that sequence fully crafted i then brought it over to you know miguel was so busy he was shooting almost the entirety of the series and getting time with him was extremely limited and so um i would go to his house on like a weekend and show him the sequence and then show ryan the sequence and make sure everybody signed off on it because there's it once you get it in the work so many other steps need to happen it needs to get approved and so it was pretty much approved as is we um and then you know and, and also you know again with how to train your dragon definitely covered a lot of action sequences that you didn't want to uh be in comparison to so i i i caught us a couple of times like going down a couple of things that we had to we had to correct but it was i was given enormous freedom on this and in fact you know ryan reminded me when we got to the coronation he was like make this a game of thrones scene like it's it is like lean into everything the show has to offer so everybody really had my back and cheered me on during the process of 10 especially and then all eyes we're on the birth. So that's where Miguel and Ryan were like on set the whole day because it was such, you know, it was such a moment that needed everybody's attention and sensitivity and focus. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that birthing scene. Cause I, I feel like those scenes, even like throughout the whole season, they're like the hardest to watch really. Those are the yeah. scenes where I like, I really have to like <laughs> move my eyes. Like, I, I mean, and, and I know Ryan has kind of said, you know, part of this season is delving into the trauma of childbirth. Um, so can you talk a little bit about those conversations that you had going into that final birthing scene with Rhaenyra? Miguel and Ryan had themes for each of the births and, and this, um, their 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 one word to me was the battlefield the 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 war like that she was at war with herself and at war and literally being kind of torn to pieces uh both on the outside and on the inside and so this was you know more of a traumatic labor you know premature birth and and also you know something that was mentioned in earlier scripts that i want to bring in was the the emotional connection to each person's dragon, which I, which did not get explored as much as I think as we had hoped or intended maybe throughout the season. But uh, for example, you know, there was, there was at one point uh, Miguel had ended the the first episode, you know, when you would go off Renera's face to uh, her dragon roaring, right. Of mm -hmm. similar shots. So, but in our conversations, we wanted to mirror the end of episode one with the episode at the end of episode 10. 
uh, going out on Renera in two different states of mind, you know, at, you know, versus, you know, her, her greatest day and her, you know, her highest point, her lowest point. Um, and, you know, these, these conversations always, again, done sensitively. And it's, it's, it's a direct, this birth in particular directly taken from the books, you know, and, and description wise from George's writing. And, you know, it was, it was getting that right. And it was something that Emma had a lot of input on and, we we worked on in many forms you know we um we both rehearsed it it had a lot of conversation around it because it's always something you want to handle very sensitively and i looked at the other birthing scenes done in the season and um you know this is something as a as a parent you know it should be hard to watch it's hard to watch yeah i loved the uh the cut in the birthing scene between Rhaenyra's face and the dragon. Um, it kind oh, of good. like flashes Thank back you. and forth. Um, in my mind, I instantly went to the book because I remember there's a line in Fire and Blood where it mentions that Visenya comes out looking deformed, almost like a half human, half yeah. dragon. Um, but like just hearing you talk about it, like you talk very prevalently about the relationship between um, a Targaryen and their dragon. I mean, was that more of like the approach with that kind of element in this scene? I added it. It, it was something that it was the placement of where those moments were. So originally in three, Damon's dragon landed behind him in that final moment. Mm. Um, you know, where, where again, we end on the Targaryen kind of almost to camera. You know, I thought of, doing one doing a take directly to camera at the end of three but i didn't want to upstage what we were going to do in one and two and there we had discussed just globally where do we want to place those moments and so after i cut the birth scene i went back to adam who's our storyboard artist and had him do some boards that matched uh, emma's physicality and um it was and i'm glad that those found their way in those roars and those moments that, 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 that it was, I, I had more, more, they were a little wider in my storyboard. So you saw that, that, that the similar contortions and movement and, you know, that, that the dragon was, was physically responding as well. And, and you didn't know if, who was how in their connection. I, I wanted, we, you know, we tried different stuff with them, with Emma uh, crawling and and doing you know doing different things that felt you know writhing and 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 of the dragon's physicality as well. So we experimented with a lot of that so that where we wanted to find those connections could go. And so, uh, but all of it informed. I mean, there's there's pieces of every take we did in that sequence. Mm. I remember. Um, I think it was around episode two or episode three. Um, some of the behind the scenes talent on this show kind of shared um, some behind the scenes images of um, sequences that didn't make the final cut. I mean, I know you guys shot so much and not all yeah. of it kind of made it into the final episode. Are there like big standout moments for you that um, for whatever reason didn't make it into the finale episode? Yeah, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's actually a great scene between Emily Best and, and Bela. Uh, between uh, Rainey's and Bela that you know about war is coming and and she has a great conversation about that she's a dragon rider and she like her father and that she's going to like stay here and do this fight like like um 
uh, Rainey's wanted to basically like, all right, I've like come here and deliver this message. Like we got to get out of like war is coming. This is before everybody commits before she commits to, um, and so that I, I saw that that was out. There was other, there was other smaller things that, that there's, there's, there's a couple of things I took out in my cut. Cause I just felt that there was a, you were really connected to the, um, Renera and Damon thread. And that was, that was important. That spine was important. And, um, and the way things were structured and those are great conversations. You know, Ryan is great to have those conversations with, and then you turn in your cut and then it evolves even more, uh, as it, as it goes on. So that was a standout moment. And then, um, nothing else really, there's nothing that came out that I missed or didn't necessarily think that we, I understood what they were doing there, but it really, you, you, you have to make those choices and, you know, and maybe somebody will see them all one day, um, uh, there. I, I actually was, I would have loved to have seen the scene back in episode two when, and then there's been, there was some really high resolution stills of it, which I have no idea where those came from. And of course I reposted them and <laughs> everybody attributed them to me, <laughs> but they were not, they were not, I was reposted. I was like, Oh wow. They're all right. They're out there. Like this is the, you know, there were and and mostly because Jani made such an amazing wedding dress. Like it is the uh, I, I hope it goes on tour and you can see the the detail. And I watched that being made from the very beginning. And uh and so just from a like, wow, all that work, you want to see it in there. But it actually mirrored a scene in episode one. And it was part of a larger montage that these young women of the realm didn't have agency. And it, it was a, it was a nice way to cycle through with not just um, uh, Millie and Emily, but with young Lena, and to see that 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 people are pulling the strings of their life, and they're and they don't have control and that agency, which um, was was a tough loss only because you you see them claim it later, and but the point had been already made, and I think that's also takes. Um, great leadership to see that and to make those choices for the, for the greater good. Once you see the season holistically. Mm. Thank you so much. <laughs> the Eric and Eric switcheroo story is just going to live in my mind rent free for you... till the end. Of time. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're going to go back and try to figure out. Cause it's like, it's literally like we're on one. And then like the messenger comes in and you turn and it's his brother. And it was, and by the way, okay, just real quick, the way this came to me was, the game of telephone. So like by the, when the news got to me, they're like, and because, you know, it's Elliot and Luke. Right. And we also have Luke, the son. It came to me that like the actor playing Luke has COVID and, but he has a twin brother. I'm like, how many twin brother, how many twins do we have on this show? <laughs> Cause it was like, I thought Elliot who's also named Elliot. So Elliot who plays Luke and then the, then Eric and Eric are Elliot and Luke. So, through all the communication, it came down. And so I'm talking to Luke thinking he's Elliot, his brother. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's wrong? What's I'm like, something's off because, and I'm like looking at Elliot. I'm like, I didn't know. I mean, it was, it was the weirdest day because the information got so mangled by the time I got to set. So, uh, it's, it was, it was, it was insane. So 
there you go. All right. Well, this is so good. Nick, it was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, same to you. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.